Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the many saints who have gone before us. Uh, Lord, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say we believe in the communion of of saints. And help us to remember that we are not alone. We are not alone as individuals. We are part of not only this church, Palm Vista, but but an extended denomination, the Southern Baptists, which is part of an extended tradition, the Protestant tradition, which is part of the whole universal body of Christ, all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Thank you for that. Thank you for the faithful uh, efforts of so many thousands and millions of people down through the ages, reaching back not just to uh, Paul and Peter and John and James and the other apostles and, uh, and that period, but all the way back past Abraham, clear back to Adam and Eve, to whom you gave the first wonderful promise that a redeemer, a mediator would come and crush the serpent's head. Father, I pray that you would uh, ignite in us this morning a passion for the clear presentation of the gospel, the good news, that, uh, that by faith and only by faith in Jesus Christ, any of us can be forgiven of our, of our sins, counted as righteous in your sight only for the righteousness of Christ, received by faith alone and therefore reconciled with you. We, th- we thank you for Martin Luther's uh, faithful work in that and we ask you to give us improved understanding this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, um, I am going to go very, very quickly through these initial slides, but I, I, I cannot present Reformation history without, again, giving you some more historical context. I gave you some last week. Here's a little more narrowly focused historical context for it. But the first thing that we have to understand is the importance of Renaissance humanism in contributing to the Reformation, in in actually sort of bringing about the Reformation. Uh, First thing to to notice is that humanism in terms of the Renaissance is not humanism as it is today. Today, humanism is emphatically atheistic or agnostic. It tends to insist that only matter and energy are real. Uh, It is vehemently anti-Christian. That's today's humanism. But Renaissance humanism uh, was a humanism that affirmed the reality of God, that affirmed the the truth, for most of the Renaissance humanists, they affirmed the truth of the Christian faith, they affirmed Jesus Christ as the Son of God, incarnate, uh, all of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. What really distinguished, uh, distinguished humanism at that time was a different matter entirely. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, one way that we understand how much humanism contributed is that there began that, that a, a, a saying began as early as the 16th century, that is the very century in which Luther lived, namely Erasmus laid the egg and Luther hatched it. Erasmus was Desiderius uh, uh, Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam. He was a great scholar. We'll learn a little bit more about him shortly. Uh, but he... he 
translated the Greek New Testament in, into English, and that helped to spawn a whole surge of knowledge of the Bible. Uh, he also, uh, not into English, I'm sorry. He, in fact, he didn't translate. He, he prepared, I'm going too fast, I'm too excited, too much in a hurry. Um, he prepared a critical edition, meaning very carefully uh, built up edition of the Greek New Testament by examining the best manuscripts he could find. And that then made that Greek New Testament available and it was printed uh, on the, the press of Johannes Gutenberg. Uh, that made the New Testament available for scholars to, uh, to study directly instead of having to study only through the Latin Vulgate. Well, the Renaissance uh, involved a critique of medieval civilization, um, which uh, medieval civilization had had an exclusive focus on death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And that deprived people, said the Renaissance leaders, of a, an appreciation of the riches, uh, richness of human life here and now in this world. So the Renaissance people wanted to say, look, Yes, God is a great object for human study. And eternity is a great object for human study. But so is now. So are people. So are works of art and literature and architecture and technology and even business, things like these. All of these, the Renaissance people said, look, since God created man in his own image, man is exalted. Man is worthy of study. Um, a, a principle of the Renaissance was to go back ad fontes, to the fount, to the origin of whatever it is you're studying. You want to go back as far as possible to the sources of Western European civilization. Those sources were Christian, yes, but they were also Roman, they were Greek, they were Hebrew. And you want to go back and, and study the people and their writings in, their, in the original languages so that you're not dependent on somebody else having translated stuff for you. Um, <clears throat> one example in the early Renaissance was Petrarch, 1304 to 74. He was a poet and a priest. Uh, he became a priest, though he didn't feel any divine calling to it. That was a very common thing in the period. And he lived a very dissolute life. He had several different mistresses and illegitimate children by them. And at some point, he went through a, a life-changing conversion to Jesus Christ. He was humble, he was repentant, and he began to, to, uh, to combine his Christian faith, newfound Christian faith, with his Renaissance interest in history and human culture and all of that stuff. And he also, by the way, and here's one of the ways in which the Renaissance begins very early on to contribute to the ideas that led to the Reformation. He was hostile to Thomistic scholasticism, scholasticism related to the scholars of the church in the 10th through 14th centuries, Thomistic related to St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, uh, who, whose Summa Theologica remains one of the greatest works in Christian theology ever done. Uh, but Thomas had a very passionate uh, commitment to Aristotelian philosophy. Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher in the 4th century BC, who was pretty much an empiricist, not quite the way we think of that nowadays. He didn't think that matter and energy were the only reality, but he did think that pretty much all knowledge came 
by empirical investigation. And so if you couldn't provide empirical, you know, hands-on, five senses, right, investigation of something, you had no reason to believe it, right? Now that was Aristotle, and <clears throat> Aristotle also had a, uh, uh, the idea that there really was no such thing as universals. We say mankind, and we think of that as, as something that can apply to every human being, and we think that it's a universal, it's a, it's a, a nature, right? Aristotle had a problem with that idea, didn't completely reject it, he, he still accepted some of Plato's idea of the universal ideas, but he was on that path that led to the nominalism of the uh, scholastic period, the medieval period. Um, Thomas also had affirmed what we later would come to call Neo-Pelagianism. Pelagius was a monk from England living at the same time as Augustine who went to Rome and he taught that Adam's sin simply deprived us of the special grace of God that humanity had been created with and given by God, but didn't deprive humanity of the basic nature of the ability to choose what was good and to understand what was good. Augustine responded, no, no, no. Adam's sin corrupted the whole of human nature so that we are corrupt, we are sinful in every aspect of who we are, and we don't just lack God's gifts. We lack what it really is to be uh, properly related to God in the nature of God, or in, in the, the image of God. So um, Pelagius affirmed human ability to pursue and find God without God's first previously giving grace. And that's an important way of putting it too, giving grace, not just being gracious, right? For the scholastics and for Roman Catholic theology in general, grace is not just God's attitude toward us. It is a created substance that God pours into us, right? Now, Pelagius said, before God pours that into you, you can pursue God. And indeed, because you do that, you merit God's giving you grace, pouring that grace into you, by which now you can begin to transform your life so that you become fit to enter into heaven, right? Um, now, Petrarch resisted all of that, and he embraced Augustine instead with a, uh, Augustine's Platonism that affirmed the reality of universals and his, his idealism that, uh, that um, uh, said it's not just by empirical investigation that we learn things, but also by, uh, by familiarity with what he would call, what, what I would call axioms, with first principles, with universal ideas, ideals that are shared by everyone, uh, that are inescapable. So there's a little bit of Platonism uh, there. Um, and Augustine put scripture very, very high. In fact, he, he thought that scripture was the supreme authority. Mickey. How is that distinguished from rationalism? Uh, well, partly that depends on how you're defining rationalism because different people define it different ways. Um, Platonism certainly lends itself to rationalism, right? And that becomes a problem as well because with rationalism, you're saying the human mind is the primary source of all knowledge and then you leave scripture behind, right? 
So Augustine, Al is telling me to get moving. Augustine put scripture top. We've got to just leave that. Um, Augustine affirmed the bondage of the human will to sin so that we couldn't actually search and find God on our own. And he affirmed the sovereignty of God in electing those who would be saved. And he affirmed that salvation is by grace, not by merits, not earning it. Um, So here are some ingredients of Renaissance humanism. One is a contempt for the medieval period as dark ages, which was Petrarch's term. And by the way, I think that he was quite wrong to call that period dark ages. There were magnificent, brilliant discoveries of all sorts made during that period. Uh, But another was belief in a golden age of civilization, classical Greece and Rome, and a golden age of the church, the age of the apostles and of the early church fathers. And by the way, I think he's partly right, partly wrong on both of those. If you read Paul's epistles, you know that the early church, the, the church of the apostolic period, was not a golden age. It was full of sin. All the churches had sin. All the churches had error. Read the, seven, uh, the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, they also had a fervor for Plato in preference, and a preference for Augustine over scholasticism and its preference for Aristotle. And they admired the ancient Latin author's literary style, and they had a conviction that all philosophy and theology should revolve around humanity and human life, especially the relationship between men and God. And for those of you who are furiously taking notes on your laptops here, I'll tell you, if you ask me, I will send you the PPT. So you need to do that so you can relax your fingers. All right, now here's a late Renaissance example, and this is Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, who lived from 1466 to 1536. So he was born uh, 17 years before Luther and died 10 years before Luther. He was educated by the Brothers of the Common Life, influenced by, by what was called the... Uh, Oh. Uh, autocorrect turned devotia into devotion, but devotia moderna, this, uh, what was then described as the current style, modern meant style, modern meant current, right? The current style of piety, which was, which was uh, characterized by humility, repentance, simplicity, and the imitation of Christ, rather than by Uh, a complex hierarchy of the church and all kinds of ritualism and everything like that, right? Erasmus was heavily influenced by that. He shaped humanism into a positive program for the reform of all society. And he was an incredibly brilliant man. He was very productive. He wrote 226 different works, including Greek New Testament, uh, critical texts that he provided, and translations of the New Testament. Um, he rejected the methods and the conclusions of scholasticism, and he criticized religion that glorified external things. Uh, he emphasized instead spirituality. Uh, mere outward communion, for example, he said was useless. The scholastics said that if you partook of the Eucharist, you were actually chewing and drinking the body and blood of Christ, whether you were a believer or not. And Erasmus said, no, if you don't believe, you're not receiving anything of Christ. Um, He attacked the immorality of the clergy and the monks and the papacy uh, in one book called In Praise of Folly, which is hilarious, and I'd love for you to read it sometime. And in another book called Julius Excluded from Heaven, it's a parody in which 
Pope Julius dies. Julius was an incredibly corrupt man, just sexually profligate and, and you know, power hungry. He was known as the, the militant pope because he, he was going out in armor all the time. Uh, so Julius dies and he gets up to heaven outside the door and he puts in the key of the kingdom, right? And it doesn't open the door. And he gets mad. And Peter's standing there. And Julius is, is having a big argument with Peter why Peter has to let him in. I've got the key. And Peter's basically telling him, you know, I recognize the idea of the key to the kingdom of heaven, but it sure doesn't look like that key. And boy, you don't look like, uh, like what Christ told me to be. And it's, it's quite funny. It's a, it's a hilarious thing. So Erasmus' program for reform consisted of these four points. One, uh, a moral reform. Uh, the essence of Christianity is living a pure, Christ-like life. Innocence, simplicity, peace, hatred of compl- complicated theology and ceremonial religion. And a cultural reform. Education is going to solve mankind's problems. Now, he didn't think that it would solve all of mankind's problems, but he thought, hey, we have to educate people. That agrees, I think, with scripture, which says my people perish for lack of knowledge. We need knowledge, which gives me a moment to highly recommend to you a source that I'm depending on very heavily in preparing these talks because I have to, I have to just do super quick stuff. This is 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. This is part three, just the Renaissance and Reformation by Nick Needham, who's a Reformed Baptist church historian in Scotland. It's, it's brilliant stuff. So I highly recommend it to you. Um, He also wanted scriptural reform. Erasmus said that the scripture is the supreme source of wisdom and it should be in the common language for all people to read, but it should be translated into the common languages from the original Hebrew and Greek, not from the Latin of the Vulgate. And this is how he put the point. He said, I want even the lowliest woman to read the Gospels and the letters of St. Paul. I want them to be translated into all languages so that they can be read and understood by Scots and Irishmen. Those were like, you know, the most barbaric people he was aware of, right? Scots and Irishmen. Uh, By Turks and Muslims. To make people understand what Christianity teaches is surely the first step to converting them. All right, a few other important Renaissance figures. I'm going to actually skip over that. We don't have the time. Uh, Now, here are some reformers on the eve of the Reformation. John of Basel uh, taught scripture alone as the source of Christian teaching. He defined the church as all believers, not just the clergy. He he denied transubstantiation. He rejected indulgences. And he he rejected forced clerical celibacy and the priest-bishop distinction. That's... That's a great deal of what we come to know as Protestantism right there in a man who died before Luther was born, right? Vessel of Gansfort died in 1489, six six years after Luther was born. He denied the infallibility of the popes and of councils. He maintained that Christ was present in the Eucharist only for believers. Uh, He was an Augustinian and held that salvation was by grace alone, not by grace plus merits. And he denied indulgences in the treasury of merit. Again, much of Reformation thought is right there. Girolamo Savonarola died in 1498, just five years after Luther was born. 
he, he lived in a particular Italian city. At the moment, I'm not pulling it in my mind. Uh, he brought about a revival in that city that just transformed the place. And uh, he, he did that by powerful preaching against sin. And people repented all over the city. And he warned of God's judgment to come. And they were fearful of that. And he pointed them to Christ as their savior. Um, he also quarreled with Pope Alexander VI over a totally different sort of an issue. That quarrel led to Alexander uh, um, uh, bringing about his martyrdom. He was burnt at the stake. Uh, but he was an Augustinian, taught salvation by grace, and obviously he defied the papacy. So we come now to Martin Luther. Uh, born in 1483 to a copper miner, uh, he was steered, that should be S-T-E-A-R-E-D, no, no, E-E is right, okay. He was steered toward the law. His father wanted him to become a lawyer, right? And so he went off to the University of Erfurt in uh, 1501 to study law, but at age 22, soon after, after the death of a friend, which shook him deeply because he was so concerned about the friend's salvation, and his own near death when a lightning bolt struck right beside him. If you've ever seen the film Martin Luther that came out about a decade and a half ago, it's a wonderful portrayal of that. Of that. He, was, he was deeply moved by these two things. He renounced the world and joined the Augustinian uh, order of friars, joining a monastery nearby him, uh, and, and uh, was driven to that by his passion for religion and salvation. When that lightning bolt struck and knocked him off his horse, he shook and pledged to, Queen Anne, to, to uh, uh, Saint Anne that if she would preserve his life, he would become a monk, and he kept his word. So then he began studying theology and studied the Via Moderna, the, the modern way of the later schoolmen, he which, which emphasized free will, personal effort, and merit in securing salvation. And if you have any understanding of the kind of man Luther was, who just had a deep sense of his own sin and unworthiness, you know how impossible it was for him ever to get any sense of, of assurance, any sense of comfort from that kind of a gospel, right? So he struggled with that for years. Um, he was ordained a priest, though, in 1507, and became a lecturer in theology at Wittenberg in 1508. And his confessor, Johannes Staupitz, von Staupitz, uh, was a fervent Augustinian confessor. That was the person to whom you went and confessed your sins, and then he would tell you what to do uh, because of that. And <laughs> he would go to, to Staupitz and confess and confess and confess. He'd spent hours digging up all these little sins that he had done through the day. And Staupitz said, you know, why don't you confess something really serious? I mean, this is, this is ridiculous, Martin. And at one point he says to him, you know, because Martin was always afraid that God was angry with him. He, he, he said he hated God because he thought that God was always angry at him. Staupitz finally says, Luther, Martin, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Do you not know that God commands you to hope. God commands you to hope. 
Well, if you want God not to be angry at you, you should obey his command not to, uh, his command to hope, right? Well, in 1511, Luther was sent to Rome on Augustinian business, business of the convent and the order. And while he was there, he was absolutely disgusted by the religious cynicism. Uh, the various clergy there, the priests, would rattle through the mass as rapidly as they could with zero conviction about it. Uh, they, they were obsessed with money, and pretty much all of them had various mistresses, and prostitutes were all over Rome. It was just a cesspool of corruption, and he was deeply shaken there because he had had this great faith in the church and in the pope, the papacy, and all that surrounded it, and this shattered his understanding. Well, he received his doctorate in theology in 1512, and during that year and, and uh, shortly thereafter, he lectured on the Psalms and on Romans uh, and on Galatians and on Hebrews. And it was through all of that that he came to have his whole understanding of how man comes to God transformed. Um, <clears throat> one very important thing was that Luther, because of the influence of some of the Renaissance scholars whom he had read, including uh, Erasmus, Luther insisted on using what's called the grammatical and historical method of interpreting the Bible. What time are we? We're, we're doing okay. Um, he insisted on grammatical and historical interpretation of the Bible, which means you read it for its plain sense. You don't think that under every term there's some hidden mystical meaning. You don't think that for every tree mentioned in the Bible there's some hidden mystical meaning. You're not allegorizing all the time. You're reading it for its plain sense, understood through its grammar, through the definitions of the terms, and through the historical circumstance in which it was written. Your idea, your, your aim is to understand what the authors of every different passage in the Bible meant. The authors, human and divine. Both God and man authored every part of scripture. And so Luther, Luther did that, and that, I believe, is what really freed him from the whole what, uh, tangle of beliefs that had come to characterize so much of Roman Catholicism, or Catholicism by this time. Uh, he became a disciple of Augustine through doing that. Augustine had written homilies on the Psalms and commentaries on Romans and Galatians, and he had studied those, and he found that Augustine's explanations were persuasive. And in 1513, he had a breakthrough. While reading and, and meditating on and praying over Romans 1.17, which says that the gospel uh, is the power, well, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith, right? Luther had always read that before this as, as the righteousness of God was God's own internal inherent justice. And that frightened Luther. Because Luther knew, I'm unjust. God is just, so he can only condemn me. But suddenly he realized that this is a righteousness that is not God's inherent justice. It is instead a righteousness, a justice that comes from God and is given to people. 
And how, does it, how is it received? It is received from faith to faith. That is by faith in the beginning and by faith in the end. The whole thing is by faith. There's nothing in there about getting it by doing good works, earning merits, becoming righteous and just in yourself inherently. It is this righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And Luther, Luther read that, recognized that, and was, was transformed at that time. But he still thought that this righteousness of God that came to us was an inner transformation, not simply a declaration by God that we were righteous. So in that respect, he was still in the more common medieval scholastic field of thought, right? Um, <clears throat> so this meant that, that the scholastics, if you remember from the handout that I gave you last week, if you went ahead and read down through that, you found that, that the, the Roman Catholic definition of justification combines our being forgiven and declared innocent by God and our being actually made holy and righteous in our conduct and in our character, right? So that's justification and sanctification together as far as we Protestants see it. And Protestants say, no, justification is simply God's declaring us righteous because he has forgiven us of our sins and he has imputed, credited to us Christ's righteousness, which we've received by faith alone. Right? And then sanctification is what follows that, and that involves his transforming our, our character and our conduct over the years. So at this point in 1513, Luther is still on the what would later be called the Roman Catholic side of that issue. All right, now, Luther had some colleagues at Wittenberg. I'll just mention them real quickly. Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt became what would be called a radical reformer. He's pretty well portrayed in that movie, Luther. Uh, pretty fiery guy. Nicholas von Amsdorf was a scholastic uh, whom Luther drew to Augustinianism. And uh, he, was, he eventually became a fearless, narrow-minded uh, Lutheran, more zealously Luther than, Lutheran than Luther himself, is what many historians think. George Spalatin was the chaplain to Prince Frederick the Wise uh, and persuaded Frederick to back Luther in his conflict with the, pra the papacy, and that became a very important thing. Wish I could go into detail. Can't. And then Philip Melanchthon, finally, who was to Luther as Tonto was to the Lone Ranger. Okay. <laughs> Philip Melanchthon uh, was a nephew of one of the brilliant uh, humanists whom I mentioned in an earlier slide but couldn't go, go through for you, uh, a brilliant Christian humanist. Philip was unbelievably brilliant. By age 21, he had written 30 books, and he wrote many more after that. And he was brilliant in Greek, brilliant in Hebrew, just an amazing man. I think far more brilliant than Luther, right? Uh, and he was inspired by, and he was even praised by, Erasmus. Um, Luther and Melanchthon made basically a union of opposites in personality. Luther wrote, I am rough, boisterous, and stormy, born to fight hosts of devils and monsters. My job is to remove stumps and stones, cut away thistles and thorns, clear away wild forests. Then along comes Master Philip, gently and softly sowing and watering with joy according to the gifts which God has abundantly granted him. 
to that's the that's the the difference between these two men and their their character and their gifting and God used them both you know in the body of Christ are all sorts of members and all sorts of gifts and he uses them um, so what we see from this is that the Protestant Reformation was not a sort of a an uprising of of you know the the rabble it was led by a group of university professors and Luther by this time by the way was already recognized as the preeminent Augustinian theologian so don't ever let somebody tell you oh yeah I mean Martin Luther just got these crazy ideas in his mind and he was too proud to back down no no didn't happen that way at all so uh, now Luther launches the Reformation in 1517 of course he had no idea that that was what he was doing uh, in April of 1517, he posted the 97 Theses. That's not a mistake. 97 Theses. His disputation against scholastic theology, which attacked, not attached, attacked Neo-Pelagianism of the later schoolmen and called for a return to Augustinianism. And that was almost completely ignored. Oh yeah, they discussed it a little bit in, in the academic circles of the university, but that was just pretty well ignored, never really got any press, never got any public or anything else, just fell into oblivion. And then in October 31, 31 of 1517, he posts 95 theses on the disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences. And by the way, understand, posting theses to the church door was not a radical thing. It was, that, you know, the, the cathedral church in, uh, in Wittenberg was the center of the university. And when you wanted to discuss with your colleagues some set of propositions, you wrote them up on a sheet of, of vellum, and you went up and you nailed them to the door of the church. And that was it. It was a common thing. It happened, well, not every day, but very, very frequently. So Luther wasn't trying to do some revolutionary thing here. He had written them in Latin, which the vast majority of people couldn't read. Basically, only his scholars could read them. So he posts them to the, to the door. In them, he attacked the abusive marketing and sale of indulgences, but he didn't attack their principle. He didn't attack the notion that, yes, the church could dispense indulgences from sin uh, by your doing certain acts of penance and paying a certain fee. Uh, he was motivated by both academic theological and personal pastoral concerns. As an academic, he recognized that there were problems in, in how indulgences were conceived of and how they were sold and so on. But as a pastor, he was watching his parishioners go outside the confines of Wittenberg from which, uh, uh, oh, come on. Uh, Tetzel. Tetzel, thank you. Johann Tetzel was, was prohibited from, from coming in to sell them but he would sell them just outside and his parishioners would go out there and they would pay their hard-earned money and come back so excited that I've got my uncle out of purgatory or I've, you know, I've you know, reduced my sentence in purgatory by a million years or something like this. And Luther knew that that was nonsense. And so he was very pastorally driven. But he had no intention of launching a movement, let alone of splitting the church. But other people got excited about this and they translated the theses from Latin into German and printed thousands and thousands of copies and they spread all over Germany 
like lightning. It was just amazing. And everybody was reading them. <laughs> and there's, by the way, there's a, a shot of what the theses looked like. This is a partial list of the theses. Um, so, and that's in Latin, of course. Um, here are some selections. And I'm going to just give you a few selections from the selections. Um, <laughs> but you can read over this later because that's the handout. Um, Christians should be taught that a person who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better work than if he buys a pardon. That was one idea. It's madness to think that papal pardons have such power that they could absolve a man even if he had done the impossible and raped the mother of God, which is what Tetzel was telling people. Yeah, even if you had you know, raped the Virgin Mary, buying this indulgence would bring you full, full pardon. Um, this immoral preaching of papal pardons makes it hard even for learned men to redeem the respect owed to the Pope from the slanders or at least the shrewd questions of the laity. Luther was concerned that the abuse of indulgences was undermining respect for the papacy. Notice what that means. He still respected the papacy and he wanted other people to respect the papacy. But then this last point here, not the very last of the theses, but it's number 82, he says... Why doesn't the Pope set all the souls free from purgatory simply out of holy love and the supreme need of those souls? This would be the most righteous of reasons, seeing that he can redeem countless souls for the sake of filthy money with which to build a chapel, which is the most tr trivial of reasons. Why, you know, if you've got this power to give the treasury, you know, from the treasury of merits, the merits of the other saints who did works of supererogation more than God requires, right, which is utterly impossible. But why, if you've got the power to dispense these merits to people, why not just dispense them freely? That would be a loving thing to do, wouldn't it? Notice what that implies. Though Luther respected the Pope, though he wanted the Pope's respect to be preserved, he had, I think, almost unintentionally at that point, done a dig that was going to open up a, a chasm between himself and the Pope. The theses were embraced by the humanists like Erasmus, who despised indulgences as a corruption of the spiritual religion of the New Testament, and by German nationalists who saw indulgences as one of the papacy's instruments for draining away German cash to Rome. Uh, and they were embraced by thousands of ordinary German citizens longing for a purification of the church. They were opposed by the Dominicans, the disciples of Thomas Aquinas, the Neo-Pelagians. They were opposed by Archbishop Albert of Mainz, who was benefiting from the sale of indulgences. And they were opposed by Pope Leo X, uh, who was also benefiting from the sale of the indulgence in order to pay for the construction of St. Peter's uh, Basilica in Rome. Well, Leo instructed Gabriel della Volta, uh, who was the head of the Augustinian order, to summon Luther to their governing body in Heidelberg in April of 1518 to bring him back into line. Uh, and this led to what we call the Heidelberg Disputation. Luther presented this disputation, 40 theses defending Augustine's doctrines of original sin and grace and attacking the scholastic subjection of Christian theology to Aristotelian philosophy there at Heidelberg. Two especially important points. One, human sin disables everyone from achieving salvation through philosophy or ethics. And two, salvation is found only in Christ crucified. Um, while there, Martin Bootser 
And I just, he's one of my new heroes. I had never studied him in depth, but I, a few weeks ago I read this biography of him, Martin Bootser, a reformer in his times by Martin Griscott. Uh, it's fabulous. He was a wonderful man. He was there at the disputation at Heidelberg, and he was converted to Luther's thinking. So also was a man named Johannes Brentz. They both embraced Luther's ideas and became Reformation leaders in Strasbourg for Bützer and Swabia for Brentz. Uh, Bützer wound up traveling all over Europe, going to city after city, basically as a delegate of Reformation thought, uh, presenting and defending Luther's ideas. And when eventually the papacy made it impossible for him to stay in Europe, uh, safely, he went to England and he spurred Reformation there in England as well. Luther still, though, had no intention of breaking away from the papacy, but he was working on the implications of his ideas in a direction that would produce Protestantism. Well, in August of 1518, the Pope summoned Luther to Rome. Frederick the Wise, fearing for Luther's safety, because he was the one in whose university Luther taught, right? arranged instead for Luther to meet in Augsburg in October with the papal legate Tomas de Vio, or Cardinal Cayetan. Now, Cayetan himself was a reformer, not quite in the same sense, but even after the Roman Protestant split in the 1520s, Cayetan sought reconciliation with the Protestants. Uh, he sought the permission of priests and, and uh, uh, to, to marry, and he sought the permission of the laity to partake of both the bread and the wine in the communion. And he agreed with some of Luther's criticisms of, indul of indulgences. And so he wanted to just call Luther's problems errors, not heresies, as the Pope was calling them. Uh, but, and, and while they were together, Luther was supposed to, uh, and Staupitz had told him this, just, just, you know, be nice, be peaceful, make, make amends here. And Luther just couldn't do that. He couldn't just let truth die. And so he wound up arguing with Cayetan. Cayetan's arguments forced Luther to, the, to deny the infallibility of popes rather than abandon all his ideas and submit absolutely to papal authority. Luther appealed then to an ecumenical council um, and that stirred remnants of conciliarism. Conciliarism was the notion that councils lead the church, not the popes, right? And I wish I could go into detail on that, but I can't. Um, Luther then had a debate with Johann, uh, Johannes Eck, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was not, well, yeah, Luther, Karlstadt, and Melanchthon in June and July of 1519, um, and Eck drove Luther to admit his views were similar to those of John Hus, who had been condemned and burnt at the Council of Constance a hundred years before. So Luther had to abandon his idea that the councils could be infallible. They no longer could be the supreme authority. What's he left with? Scripture. Himself, right? No. Scripture. Scripture. Um, and I'm going to have to skip over some stuff here. Um, this is crucial, though. In 1519, Melanchthon recognized, because of his study of Greek, that the New Testament meant by justify not to make righteous, but to pronounce righteous. A forensic act, not a constitutive act. doesn't constitute you righteous. It pronounces you righteous in God's, uh, God's sight. That led to the distinction of justification from sanctification, 
which was probably, as Needham puts it, the single greatest theological hallmark of the Reformation. Uh, this was actually not a new thing. The early church fathers had taught it. Bernard of Clairvaux had taught it in the 12th century. And it tied in perfectly with Augustine's teaching of salvation by grace alone, not by merit attached to the individual. Uh, so Luther's definition of faith then matured. Not mere, it was not mere assent to church dogmas, but trust in God, particularly in Christ's saving acts. And this, as Needham put it, sapped the foundations of the, of the medieval view of the church. Grace was not mediated through priesthood, but given by direct relationship with Christ. And grace was not a substance in the soul, but God's attitude of favor. So for Luther, the true Christian was always a sinner, always repenting, always justified. So then we have uh, Luther, uh, you know, the, the Pope issues a bull condemning Luther. Luther burns it. I'm having to skip over stuff. Anybody who wants the PowerPoint and all these notes, you can ask me for them and I'll email them to you. Uh, he writes three marvelous treatises, uh, treatises in 1520, the Address to the Christian Nobility, the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and the Freedom of the Christian Man. Uh, and these really, you know, break him off. And then uh, the, papal, uh, the, the Pope uh, requires Luther to be examined at the Diet of Worms. And um, the, uh, Aleander sets a table of Luther's books in front of him and calls on Luther to renounce them all. And Luther says, well, look, you know, I've got books here that are just commentaries on the Bible, and they say all kinds of true things. You want me to renounce the truth? You know, I have to, I have to distinguish, and Aleander didn't want him to distinguish that way. Ultimately, Luther says, unless I am convicted by the testimonies of Scripture or by clear reason, since I believe neither the popes nor the councils by themselves, by themselves, note that, right? For it is clear that they have erred, uh, they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am conquered by the holy scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not withdraw anything, since it is neither safe nor right to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. The princes and the crowds cheered. The enemies hissed, and after two days of fruitless discussion, Luther left, and during his journey away, Frederick the Wise's troops kidnapped him, took him to the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach for safety, and there he translated the Bible into popular German uh, while pretending to be a Prince George and making tra trips out and visiting the people but disguising himself all the time. Many popular writers took up Luther's cause and the Reformation became unstoppable and that's it.